You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. A reading from Colossians 3. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scytherin, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. For all these virtues put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of the one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord, Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You're fulfilling your destiny, Anakin. These were the words uttered by Emperor Palpatine in the third episode of the epic movie series Star Wars, as young Anakin Skywalker was being lured to the dark side of the Force. Now, this is the iconic moment in which Anakin Skywalker was renamed as Darth Vader, one of the greatest villains and fictional characters ever. Now, according to the Emperor Palpatine, it was the destiny of Anakin Skywalker to become Darth Vader and to rule the galaxy. Yet to fulfill his destiny, he was commanded to do what must be done, do not hesitate, and to not show any mercy. And this meant murder and intimidation. The pathway to power for Darth Vader, his destiny, was built on the powers of evil, bringing fear, suppression, and obedience. This was his destiny. His future was altered, and it brought with it a whole way of life. Now, you know, it might not be so familiar with Star Wars, but the idea of destiny, that certain events or activities will necessarily happen to a particular person or thing in the future, is a powerful one in our culture. I found a website, How to Fulfill Your Destiny, and it offered some advice on fulfilling our destiny. And it said, destiny is living the life you were meant to live, something only you can determine. Now, it's common in our world to affirm destiny and also that we have the power to determine our destiny. Destiny, like the choice Darth Vader had, is a choice, a choice that we all have. 
Now, when someone becomes a Christian believer, it actually alters their destiny. Their future will be different. Now, the choice to become a Christian, unlike the choice Darth Vader made, is not going to involve wearing black clothes, a big helmet, altering our voice and be called weird names as we use magical powers, but it will involve a change. But what in particular? What is the destiny of believers? Well, the destiny of believers is at the heart of Colossians 3, the passage we're looking at today. And in this passage, the Apostle Paul summarizes the destiny of believers and what it means to fulfill this destiny. Now, if you have Colossians 3, 1 to 17 open, we can see where we're going today. And Paul starts by summarizing our destiny in verses 1 to 4. And then he describes what things are not connected with that destiny in verses 4 to 11, and then shares what behaviors are connected with the destiny of believers in verses 12 to 17. So we can consider perhaps, you know, verses 1 to 4 as destiny, verses 4 to 11 as death, what to put to death, and then verse 12 to 17 as drapes what things believers will wear as they fulfill their destiny. This passage opens with a profound and rich description of the identity and destiny of believers. It builds on and extends the logic of the previous chapter. Notice it starts with since then or therefore. So Paul is making a logical connection to what's just come before. Well, what's Paul just been saying? Well, Paul is continuing to outline the implications of the profound theological truths he's described in the previous chapter. In 2.5, Paul affirms that the Colossians have received Christ, therefore they should continue in him, 2.5. But not just because this is a nice idea and a useful piece of knowledge and information. No, they should continue in him because believers have been brought to fullness in Christ and united to him. He says in 2.12 that believers have been buried with him in baptism and also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So receiving Christ, believing in Christ, putting faith in him is far more than just a nice thing to, do, to know. We actually become connected with Christ. We are connected with him in the most profound experience, in his most profound experience, which is of his death and resurrection which is symbolized by the down and up motions. Hence, we have been buried with him in baptism and then raised with him through our faith in God who raises the dead. And the idea of being united with Christ is a profound one, like being in an airplane, a submarine or a roller coaster. You're connected with them. Wherever they go, you go. The roller coaster dives down and you dive down. The roller coaster twists and you twist. The roller coaster then suddenly rises up, and so does your lunch. We are united to Christ. So wherever Jesus goes, we go. Wherever Jesus is, we are. And so then Paul outlines a series of implications of being united with Christ and rooted in him. In 2.20, he deals with the implications of dying with Christ because you've died with Christ to the elemental forces of the world because you're united to Christ who's defeated these forces and everything they stand for, you aren't bound by them anymore. And then in the passage we're looking at now, he turns to the implications of being raised with Christ. Colossians 3.1, since then you have been raised with Christ. What happens? What happens when the Jesus roller coaster rises? Well, Paul says there, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Our hearts are what we seek, 
our heart's desires, our strivings and longings. And Paul is saying that there is to be a congruence between our attitudes and behavior and where Christ is. And now Paul describes two contrasting realms, the realm above and the earthly realm. Now, Christ is found in the realm above, in heaven, with God, seated at the right hand of God. He's been raised up above. And because we're connected with Christ, we're united with him. So the believers are to follow. Our destiny and attitudes are inextricably linked with him. So we are to seek after the realm of Christ where Christ is. Now, believers aren't physically with Christ in heaven yet, but Paul still exhorts believers to live as though they are above in heaven. They're to seek after what is above. So even though Christ is in heaven, believers are to set their minds on that reality because we're connected with Christ and because it's our destiny. Now, Paul explains this further in verses 3 and 4 where he says, you died. Now, clearly, the believers aren't dead because otherwise it would be relatively pointless writing them a letter. So in what sense have believers died? Well, it's because of the connection with Christ. Because believers are connected with Christ, they are united with him in Christ's death to the old way of life. This old, old way of life is aligned with the earth. So when we're connected with Christ, the old way of living, the values, the attitudes, the strivings and longings of that old way connected with the earth is no more. It'd be a fairly unpopular roller coaster if you died when you, want, when you, want, when, sorry, when you went on it. But when we believe in Christ, our old way of life died and is finished. But more than that, when we believe in Jesus, when we're united with him, our own identity is altered. We're not simply strapped onto Jesus like a roller coaster. The fundamental nature of who we are is altered. So much so that Paul can now say that our life is now hidden with Christ in God. Our identity is now so caught up with Christ that our own life is concealed in him. I heard of a man in Pakistan who once when asked, or who when asked, who are you? He would answer, I am a Christian. For to him, being a Christian was foremost in his identity. Now, it's not, the, not that we cease to be an individual like, say, Eastern mysticism, but our identity is now so caught up with Christ that we can't describe who we are without reference to Christ. It kind of feels a little weird, sort of Pirates of the Caribbean, part of the ship, part of the crew idea where crew members become part of the ship sort of concept, but so deep. And so profound is the interconnection between Christ and the believer that our lives can now be described as hidden with Christ and almost interchangeable with Christ. Christ is our life. So then it naturally follows that our identity is also intertwined with Christ. Verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Our destiny is found in Christ because believers are united with Christ. And this destiny is glory, glory of eternal life with Christ forever. Glory with Christ is the ultimate destiny of every believer, which is a massive contrast to the prevailing thoughts of our world and particularly the culture around us in the inner north of Melbourne. Our world claims that, as, that we determine our own destiny. Destiny is a choice and that we are free to make and determine our own destiny. As I mentioned earlier, it's common to believe that destiny is living the life that you were meant to live, something only you can determine. The founder of Weight Watchers, Gene Nidetsch, said, it's choice, not chance, that determines your destiny. 
Our culture asserts that we are able to determine our own destiny, our own glory. Our world needs to do this because there is nothing above, no greater purpose, no greater destiny. We're just, we're free to just live for today. As the famous John Lennon song, Imagine says, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. And this summarizes our world's perspective. There is nothing above. We're all alone. There is nothing above to help us. So what happens? Just imagine all the people living for today. That's our destiny. Human created, human empowered, living for today, not living for anything above and beyond our present circumstances. Now, some find comfort in the fact that our destiny is in our own hands. But the tragedy of our anxious and insecure world is that we're not able to do this. I wonder if our modern age is described as the age of anxiety because we have nothing above to connect to. And we're desperately struggling to create something in our lives to give us meaning and purpose as we live for today. The idea that we might be able to create our own destiny may appear liberating and empowering, but in the end, it becomes enslaving and demoralizing because we're not ultimately in control of our destiny. If the COVID-19 pandemic has taught us nothing else, it's taught us that we are not in control of the world. We cannot ultimately shape our destiny. There are forces bigger than us which will shape our destiny and our future, no matter how strongly we believe it. But even if we did find an inspiring and motivating destiny and purpose and purpose to shape us here in modern Melbourne, that motivating image is ultimately shattered by death. Death slams a wrecking ball through the personal destinies that we might construct, our achievements, reputation, finances, legacy. In death, it's all gone. For the ultimate destiny of humanity is that in our godless materialistic world of the inner north of Melbourne, there's not anything glorious but death. Our destiny is constrained to a small wooden box as our ashes become worm food. We can try and define and create our own destiny, but this will end in inglorious failure. Yet there is good news for the believer. For in Christ, our destiny is glory because we are united with him. And then Paul continues and unpacks the implications of this. And we can see in verse five, another, therefore, as a result of this, Paul makes a series of exhortations or imperatives. He outlines the implications of setting our hearts on Christ and seeking the above. And the implications are not ritualistic. It's not about performing the right actions. It's not about saying the right set of words. The implications are ethical. It's about living a certain way. Your identity changes the way you live. Darth Vader had to live a certain way. Once he became Darth Vader, he had to live according to the dark side of the force. When Kate Middleton became Princess Catherine, so I might say that that was when she joined the dark side, but she got etiquette lessons because changing identity to become a member of the royal family changes the way you sit, eat, dress, talk, and get in and out of a car. Hence, living with the identity of Christ, of our lives being hidden in Christ, now living for the world above, changes the way we live. We can no longer live associating with the things of the world, of things of the, sorry, the things of the earth below, because we've died to it. Thus, Paul makes three imperatives in this section, in verses 5, 8, and 9, where he outlines things that must stop, things that aren't appropriate in the world of the above. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, in verse 8. But now you must also rid yourselves. And one specific exhortation in verse 9 do not lie. So there's an incongruence between where you're going and how you should behave. 
When you're heading for the world above, you need to put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. So Paul then outlines a series of vices which are connected to the earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. Now, we could spend some time thinking about each one of them, and I'm not going to ask everyone in the post-church Zoom call to kind of do a personal confession, but notice that many of these in this vice list here have connotations or connections with our passions, which are often sexual in nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. But Paul adds one onto this list, which is perhaps the most insidious, but most invisible, greed. Greed is a challenging sin, for unlike all the others, its, a manifesta- its manifestation is not so clear or overt. Sometimes greed masquerades as financial prudence or saving for retirement or wise financial decisions. Yet greed is so bad, it's described as idolatry. It's idolatry because the desire to acquire and keep more money and material things for ourselves is an attack on God's exclusive right to human love, trust, and obedience. This is an enormous challenge in our culture, for we are the richest group of people who have ever inhabited the earth. Yet we're called to put to death greed and find our security, hope, and value in Christ, not in our share portfolio or the Melbourne property market. And this is serious because of this evil and impurity, the wrath of God is coming. And Paul then continues in light of this and in the seriousness of the anger of God with yet more vices to be put off, things inappropriate for the world above, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices. Now, notice here, Paul is commenting more on interpersonal relationships and the use of the tongue, things like slander, filthy language, um, and lies. It's been said that the tongue has no bones, but is strong enough to break a heart. Our words are powerful. The tongue is powerful. So these things should be used truthfully and with purity as we put off the things which belong to our earthly nature. And in verse 10, he reiterates why we should do this. Since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self. Notice this is not do these things to earn your relationship with God. That's legalism. And he's also not saying, well, do these things because look at what God's done for you. So you should pull your socks up. That's the debtor's ethic. The motivation is because believers have been born again. Put the old earthly nature to death and the things which belong to the earthly nature. Instead. You are in Christ and he has died and given you a new identity and you live in a different realm in the world above. And our new selves put to death earthly things because we're becoming more like our creator. Our creator gives us a a vision, a pattern for the things above. We look to him for guidance and how we ought to live. And in him, there is no fault or wrinkle or stain. In him is light and life and nothing which belongs to the earthly nature. So given that this is our destiny, how can we live for money? How can we tell dirty jokes? How can we lie and deceive others? All believers have the image and pattern of our creator to model themselves on, but not just a model because believers are hidden in Christ. Notice in verse 11 here that in Christ for all who believe, Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, there is no difference. 
All are united to Christ. Christ is all and in all, he is supreme. So whilst our identity is altered in Christ, our individual personal identity is not obliterated. We are still individuals, but retain something of our distinctiveness. This is profound and a beautiful idea, which is in contrast to some Eastern philosophies where we lose our individuality in order to be subsumed into something bigger. Yet in Christ, we retain something of our distinctiveness, but are still profoundly connected to something bigger. That something bigger being Christ, who is all and is in all. And this means that we're free to be an individual, but we're not left to be only individuals. We're lifted up to something not possible. The roller coaster of Jesus lifts us up to heights we could not possibly imagine and our own puny visions for what's possible. This is our glorious destiny so that we should put to death anything which is not part of our destiny in Christ. And then in verse 12, Paul begins with another therefore. This follows Paul's comments about Christ being all and in all. Because Christ is supreme, it means positive action. Paul, therefore, explains what's to put on. The destiny of believers is not just putting things off. The life of a Christian is not simply being defined by what we're against. There is a positive vision of the good. The life above is in vast contrast to the world. And he uses a clothing metaphor to describe what to put on. Now, the clothes of Darth Vader are instantly recognisable. His clothes, black helmet, black cape and black bodysuit are appropriate for him to fulfill his destiny as the Dark Lord of the Sith. I think it wouldn't quite work. It would be a little inappropriate for the Dark Lord to be wearing white sequins, a spandex bodysuit and pink pom-poms. His clothes were appropriate for his destiny. But they were also appropriate for his identity. His identity as a Dark Lord reflected his clothes, which reflected his actions. And like the Christian, we clothe ourselves with behaviours which are appropriate for our identity and destiny. And notice that Paul reiterates our identity as God's children, holy and dearly loved. This is who you are. So his exhortations is for believers to wear clothes appropriate for who you are. And we should see these clothes in verses 12 to 13. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And then in verse 13, we see bearing with one another and forgiveness. Bear with one another, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. What a clothes rack. Again, we haven't really got time to go into each virtue in detail, but imagine a world where these virtues reigned, where everybody wore these clothes. But notice the clothes themselves. In this vision, all are interrelated. So imagine that we zero in on just one of these virtues and focus on, say, kindness, where everything, and and we wanted to focus on kindness today or tomorrow, maybe tomorrow morning. We wake up, I want to be kind tomorrow. And everything we we do exudes kindness. So we're especially kind to our family. We're kind and thoughtful to the the people we work with. We do a, a kind act for someone we don't even know particularly well. But it's hard to be kind without also being gentle or patient or bearing with frustrating people or situations, or even forgiving someone. The virtues of the Christian life are interrelated and consistent with the character and virtues of our God in heaven, where we set our hearts and minds. 
And notice that Paul doesn't really tell us how specifically we should put these virtues on. He just exhorts us, clothe yourselves with, put it on, live like this. Maybe it helps avoid legalism or avoids rigid conformity within Christian communities, or maybe it respects our differences and how through the spirit of God working on us, we can change. For instead, he's presented a vision of the virtues befitting the life above. And then in verse 14, we see the capstone of these virtues, of this vision. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Love. It isn't surprising that the virtue which rules them all is love. It's consistent with the characteristic, which also describes the heart and essence of God. God is love. We are to live as God is. We are to live in love. And love, I think, can be radically different to the dominant virtues of our culture. I think our culture is defined by virtues such as tolerance or maybe equality or diversity, each noble and worthwhile ideals, but they are impoverished as providing a vision for society. For love is so much more profound and personal. I'm not sure if you'd feel terribly pleased if someone baked you a cake for your birthday and put, I tolerate you on it. Or if you went to sleep each night feeling tolerated by those around you. Or knowing that people only do things for you because it fulfills a diversity quota or ensures a certain form of equality. Now, these things and tolerance is impoverished as a totalizing moral vision for our society. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Love has been described as the supreme emotion and it forms the centerpiece of the Christian vision of the good life. This is a radical countercultural vision for the good life. And in this vision of the world above where Christ reigns, where we are to set our hearts, our affections, our desires, our longings and desires. Indeed, this is one of the reasons that I'm a Christian believer because I believe that the Christian message offers what I call a vision for the good a vision of what true flourishing looks like, um, a vision above. Because I think humans have an intuition that there is something greater, that there is a, a pure, noble, and beautiful path. But if we just matter in energy, if there's nothing above, then there'd be, there can be real no vision for the good life. We can try and create one for ourselves, but I think that whatever we could create, it would be inadequate compared to the binding power and unity of love when we emulate the God who is love. So then in light of this, Paul can conclude by encouraging the believers to have peace, be thankful and sing. But this is all good news, isn't it? It's interesting that one of the chief outcomes of living for a destiny beyond ourselves, something that we didn't have to create, is peace. Something our anxious world longs for. It thinks it can find by living for today, but is actually found in living for something above, something bigger than us, something in Christ. And we are reminded that whatever we do, to do it all in the name of Jesus Christ, because it makes sense to do everything for Christ, because he is our life and our identity, and in him is tied our destiny. We are to drape ourselves in Christ, do everything for his name, clothe ourselves with the virtues of our destiny in Christ. So there we have Paul's manifesto to the believer of our destiny and identity. Our destiny and identity are intertwined in Christ 
There are things which we are put to death and there are things which we drape ourselves in. A glorious vision of the future. So how does this look for us? Well, recently I participated in a short online leadership course uh, as an alumni of UNSW where I did my undergraduate commerce degree. And the focus of the course was on sustainable leadership. And one of the modules encouraged us to develop a leadership statement. We're asked to write a statement of our desired identity and legacy. Notice, uh, now notice it did assume that you can create your own identity, but in developing our leadership statement, we had to write down what are the traits that you wish to be known for? What are the traits someone in your role should exhibit? And then the module facilitator asked, in 10 years' time, when a colleague might be describing you to someone else, imagine they're using descriptive words to describe you. What would you want those words to be? She went on and said, if you could use six words, six words that you would like a colleague to use to describe you, what would they be? The module facilitator suggested things like innovative, independent, strategist, efficient, leading, calm. So maybe think, what would you, you put down? What traits would you like to describe you in 10 years? Funny, visionary, inspiring, competent, tolerant, fair? What about compassionate, kind, humble, gentle, patient, loving? These are six words. Six traits, which are the clothes and behaviours which are connected with those who are in Christ. This is our destiny. This is our future. This is our vision. This is who we are in Christ, who is our life and our all. So since we've been connected to and raised with Christ, we live with this. We fulfil our destiny by doing everything, word or deed, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen. And let's pray. Father, we thank you for such an inspiring clothes rack of virtues that we're to put on. Help us to live as people of love and reflect you as the God who is love. Amen.